let me pray, and then we'll get going. Father, we pray for the uh, the gentleman that Tony had the opportunity to speak to, Lord, um, and uh, pray that he would indeed read the Gospels um, and that he would see um, what you designed um, discipleship, following you, what you designed your followers to do, um, trust in you for salvation, and then uh, living um, self-sacrificially, uh, considering others' needs ahead of one's own. Lord, help us to live that way um, so that when we, when we encounter people like the person Tony encountered, that we would have a, te- a witness, uh, a- actions, behavior that matches our profession, oh Lord God. So we pray for that. We pray for that as individuals and as a church. Lord, we pray for this morning as we continue to consider uh, who you are and what you have who you are, Lord God, and what you've done and what you are doing, that we would worship you. Um, Grant us focus, grant us help. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, um, we continue to talk about um, God's abilities and kind of under the heading of God's sovereignty. And remember, God's sovereignty, just broadly considered, means that um, God has lordship and rule over all, um, without exception. So we started with that general notion, but then we talked about, well, what does that entail? So we've talked about God's power, um, God's knowledge, God's presence. Uh, we've talked about all of these things. Um, and then this, we kind of dipped into this concept last week, but we're going to focus on it separately this morning. And uh, what we want to talk about this morning under the heading of God's sovereignty is God's decree. God's decree. Um, and... What do we mean by that? Now, in a sense, it matches with the language of sovereignty. When we're thinking about sovereignty, we're thinking about rule and kingship. And so if you think even just along those lines of a king issues a decree, and, and that'll get you, that gets us started in what we mean by God's decree. If we wanted a definition, uh, here's, here's one. Uh, God's decree is his eternal plan, whereby, according to his decretive will, which just means... Uh, his will, uh, considering him, him decreeing something, and for his glory, he foreordained everything that comes to pass. So this is normally what we think about when we think about God's sovereignty. We think about this. We think about God's decree. Um, we think about him planning things um, from all eternity. Um, and that is definitely true. That is part of God's sovereignty, although, as we've said, really, God's rule um, overall is even more broadly considered than just that. But if, when we, if and when we think about God's sovereignty, this is normally what we think of. Uh, but we put it under the heading of God's decree, his eternal plan, uh, and his determination of everything that comes to pass. So um, let's walk through some passages and just, just see, okay, where do we see this? Uh, where does it show up? Uh, and there's many passages we could argue from, but to see it as mo- the most explicitly, here's a few we could look at. Let's turn to Psalm 33 to start with. Psalm 33 is really a call for praising um, God, singing to Him a new song. It's very oriented towards creation uh, and towards even kind of a, a general consideration of what God does in the world. Um, but let's go ahead and jump into Psalm 33 and look at verses 10 and 11. Someone go ahead and read that.
Okay, so in these two verses, where do we see something like a decree, or you could use the word plan? What does it say? Yeah, plans of God's heart, verse 11. Uh, remember how Hebrew poetry generally works, right? You have one line that talks about an idea, and the next line usually has uh, maybe a different way of expressing the same idea. Maybe it amplifies it. Maybe it shifts it just slightly. But you've got on, in verse 11, first line, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. When you think about counsel, we're thinking about a plan. We're thinking about deliberation. Uh, and then in the second line, the plans of his heart to all generations. Okay, what about his, um, what does it say about his counsel? What does it say about his plan in this verse? Well, both verses, really. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, so that speaks to, uh, yeah, so God's plans supersede. Uh, anything, uh, any other plans or deliberation by the nations. So uh, we're, whether we're thinking about a nation as a whole, whether we're thinking about individuals within those nations, um, God's plan supersedes that, nullifies that um, when it, there's a conflict, right? Um, you could think about it like that. Um, and it's really the counsel of the Lord that's going to stand. It's his plan that's going to happen. Um, so God's got a plan. Uh, God has uh, a deliberate, you know, that word for counsel, again, it, it evokes the idea of deliberation, uh, thought out, um, and so God has this plan, he has this counsel, and it's going to stand, it's going to happen, uh, even contradicting or overriding, however you want to say that, any plans that the nations might have when they conflict, okay? Um, so there's one verse that we looked at. Anything else from this passage that you notice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. God doesn't shift his plan, right? It's, he deliberates, um, he plans, the plans of his heart, they stand. It's not going to shift. Um, which would go along with what we said about God's immutability, right? Um, part of God's immutability means that he is not going to change his purposes. Um, he's not, so... Uh, let's look at another one. We've actually looked at this passage several times, Isaiah 46, uh, but uh, I think we actually looked at it last week, but um, worth, that last week we were focused on the idea of knowledge, um, but let's look at it one more time, um, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Okay, so what do you see in relation to something like a plan, a decree, in this passage? Okay, and we've looked at this before, but it bears repeating. I like verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, mm -hmm. and from ancient times things not yet done. Mm -hmm. Yep, 
so this is ahead of time. Uh, this, is not, uh, this is not as events unfold, right? God's not responding to events as they unfold in the sense that he didn't know about them, uh, but rather uh, he has declared the end from the beginning. And again, you see that idea of counsel. My counsel, God's deliberate plan, um, shall stand, and I will accomplish all his purpose. Uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So any other thoughts on... On this. So here we see again God's counsel, his plan, and that it's going to happen. There's both those things. He has a plan, but it's going to come to pass. Any other thoughts? That, that term counsel becomes really important. Like we went back to Psalms, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not just that he knows, but he's planned it. He's decreed it. He's declared it. It's going to happen this way, and it's done perfectly, done in wisdom. Um, we would say it this way, right? That God uh, is, the, you know, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? Um, wisdom is applying what you know skillfully um, to make things happen. Well, God acts in wisdom. He plans, uh, predetermines, declares it before it happens. Uh, that, and again, remember the context of Isaiah 46 that this is in the context of God showing, hey, over against all the other false gods that you could have, this is what I do. This is unique to me, and this shows that I am God. Um, So, okay, let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to Ephesians 1. And we're going to, I'm going to, parachuting in the middle of Paul's run, long run-on sentence, but um, thankfully, most English translations break it up a little bit. Um, Ephesians 1.11. So, just to remind you, Ephesians 1, uh, from verse 3 to really verse 14, Paul is reflecting on, and starts with a blessing, uh, in the sense of praise, praising God uh, for what he has done in terms of salvation. And he really does it in a Trinitarian way um, throughout um, so in that context, we get verse 11. We're going to focus on verse 11 for right now. So um, Ephesians 1.11. For right now, let's just pause there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, now wh- where do we see God's plan his decree in this verse what's that Our our inheritance so that's part of it so paul is focused on that idea of here's a benefit to believers but he does he 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 reflects on that benefit to believers to the saints to those whom god has predestined but then he kind of backs that up uh, with a broader notion. How does he back it up with a broader notion? 
Yeah. So this predestination um, is according to his purpose. Um, and then what, is it, what else does it say? Well, that's what I'm drawing your attention to is that you've got this idea. Of perp- so Paul says, all right, let's talk about our predestination as saints. But then what he does is he draws attention to, hey, that's, it's not just like God has a plan in relation to people and saving people. His plan and his decree is broader than that. Right? So that's why he says, this is according to, so we're measuring this predestination, measuring this attaining it of inheritance, according to the purpose. So God has purpose in this deliberation, intention, of him, this is referring to the Father at this point, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there we got the idea of counsel again, right? This idea of deliberation, of planning. Um, so God has uh, planned things. He's got this counsel, this deliberation that he has. And notice there's two, there's, there's, there's two things going on here. There's this counsel of his will, this purpose that he's got for everything. And then there's him working it out. You see that? There's two things going on. There's the counsel and his purpose. So it's like, here's the blueprint. Here's the plan. And then he works it out. He actually builds it. He actually makes it happen. And what Paul is doing, he's saying, okay, one of those things amongst many other things, one of those things is the salvation and the obtaining of an inheritance of believers. But that's according to a, the more general notion, which is what we're focusing on right now, of God's uh, counsel, his plan, his purpose, that he has determined, he has declared the end from the beginning um, of all things. Um, so there's not only the plan, but then God working out that plan. Now, we can talk, there's many things we could talk about in this, and again, Paul is focusing on uh, the benefits of salvation, but what I want to draw your attention to here is it's broader than that. It's broader than that and bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the idea of, oh, sorry, Bruce, go ahead. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things that we see not only here in Ephesians 1, and specifically, Paul is saying, let's talk about salvation. Why is God doing this? He's doing it for the praise of his glory. Um, but then you could even go, and we've gone to this passage before. I think we did last week. You could go to a place like Romans 11, 33 through 36, um, where 36 says, from him and through him and to him are all things to God be glory forever. Amen. So not only in the salvation of believers, but in everything that God is doing, the purpose, he deliberates, he forms a plan, and the way that plan works its way out ultimately is about the display of God's magnificence, his glory, his character. So yeah, it's good to pick up on that here. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of God's um, decree in general. From those three passages, Psalm 33, Isaiah 46, Ephesians 1, we have support for saying God has a plan. God has a counsel, a deliberation that he has chosen, that he has um, uh, predetermined to happen, that he has declared from the beginning to happen. Um, So we know there is this plan. But now we can get a little bit more specific of, okay, let's talk about some of the content of what that plan is. 
Let's talk about some of the things God has revealed about uh, what uh, does that plan encompass? What does that decree encompass? So let's go back to another passage we've spent some time in. Let's go to... Um, do I want to do that yet? Yeah, let's go ahead. Uh, Psalm 139. Again, this psalm by David where he's reflecting and taking comfort in God's knowledge, God's presence. Um, and we saw this last week, but then we were focused more on knowledge. This time we're focused more on the idea of the decree. Um, so again, it bears repeating. Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and you, in your book were written every one of them. In the, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Okay, so where do we see God's plan, his decree, in this case? His book was published before we... Yeah, the book, <laughs> the book was published... Um, and so now we see not only God's decree generally, but we see a specific content of that decree and that plan, and that is the writing of the days of every human being, right? So we talked about this last week from the standpoint of knowledge. You think about it, God could have knowledge of something, but that doesn't necessarily mean he predetermined it. But we mentioned last week that God has knowledge because he has predetermined it, right? Because he has written all of the days of every single human being when as yet there were none of them. So everything that transpires for every single human being, God's got it written down in a book, or at least that's the imagery that's being used here, um, to, to say it's written, it's done, it's going to happen. Um, and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So here we see that his decree, his plan, encompasses every event of every human being who's ever lived their lives as they unfold. Everything. Okay? Down to... Um, if you want to talk about to what degree, uh, to what level um, does the degree uh, encompass? Well, go to Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 16. Um, Proverbs 16, 33, last verse of the chapter. Yeah, so what is this saying? Even chance isn't chance. Even chance isn't chance. It's a very good way of putting it, right? Which is interesting. I, I was just listening to uh, a biography of Einstein and kind of the development of, well, his relativity theory, but also this idea of quantum mechanics. And this idea of quantum mechanics is you can't actually, one of the ideas is that you can't actually, like, uh, observe where a particle actually is. You can only say with a certain degree of probability where it might be, like subatomic particle, uh, things going on in the atom. Um, and Einstein's like, God doesn't play with dice, so like, um, how does this all work, right? And so this verse, we think about it, it's like even, even the things that look like chance aren't chance, right? Um, they are predetermined. They are part of God's decree because he has decreed everything. So we can talk about human being lives, 
But then we can also talk about seemingly very mundane and chance events. Those are determined and planned uh, by God. Um, one of the pastors that uh, was a mentor of mine, he said, uh, God controls everything from the, you know, like the, 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 the biggest level you could think of, the spinning of galaxies and planets, um, all the way to the roll of the dice in Las Vegas, right? It's all predetermined. Um, so, um, which means what? Now we get into the disturbing territory of God's decree. Um, so we're talking kind of from big picture level, and now we're kind of thinking, well, okay, here's this decree, here's this plan. Um, we can see the evidence from the scriptures that this is so, but then what does that necessarily entail? Um, yeah, so there's that aspect of it. So people will be disturbed by saying, well, where is human freedom? And then you have to say, well, what do you mean by freedom? What, what, is, what is freedom? Um, and... Uh, so there's that aspect of it. We can talk about human freedom. What's the other kind of disturbing aspect when we start talking about the predetermination of all things? Yeah, Patricia. Yeah, so there's that aspect of it. And we already saw the, the, the you know, Ephesians 1 is the one of the key texts that you would go to to say it's very clear. Even in the one verse that we looked at, um, God is um, choosing who is his, who is not. Uh, okay, there's two things. Uh, I'm thinking, you still, there's one th thing that, yeah, Susan. Sure, and that goes back to the freedom aspect, yeah. Uh, Julie. Okay, yeah, so that's more God's presence. I'm thinking more of evil, right? Um, evil and sin, and because if God has predetermined all events, if he's written everyone's days when as yet there are none of them, that would include... Uh, when those people do evil things, uh, and that would also include things like the fall itself, that would include things like um, Satan's original sin. Um, so this is where people struggle with the freedom aspect of it, because people want to be free, you know, want to be sovereign. And then, but the other aspect, and the one that atheists will often bring up, is the problem of evil, right? Like, well, wait a minute, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and even he's decreed all things is what we're saying, then how do we, you square that with evil and disaster in the world? Uh, God's decree covers that. Um, so let's work through that a little bit and try to understand uh, what that means. Uh, go to Isaiah 45. We did this. Uh, I don't know if we did this one last week. We may have, but it was sometime recently. Um, go to Isaiah 45. Uh, Isaiah 45, um, again, God is, uh, well, um, Isaiah is proclaiming to Cyrus, the Persian king, who's eventually going to uh, release the um, Babylonian exiles to go back, build the temple. Uh, this is about 100 years before this happens, okay? Um, but Isaiah is prophesying about it. And in the middle of this, we get tons of declarations of God's character and what he does. So let's read Isaiah 45, 5 through 7.
Yeah, so he's talking to Cyrus in particular, but he's, he's applying, um, he's, again, applying his general character in this discussion. And one of the things God is saying is, um, I form light and I form darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. Um, so that's a broad sense, because you could have, um, uh, that's a broad sense of God saying, uh, yeah, I have control over calamity too. Uh, which would include things like calamities that happen because of human sin. Like, I, that's not outside of my decree. That's not outside of my plan. So then the objection is, right, uh, well, wait a minute. How does that, does that then make God the author of sin? Does that make him a committer of sin? Does that make God a sinner? A sinner? Does, does that, what happens? And we get some glimpses of how this works, uh, in several places in Scripture, there are three that I've got examples for. Let's think of Job to start with, okay? So think of Job, those first couple chapters of Job. What happens? What's that? Lots of calamity. Where does the calamity come from? Yeah, God's challenge to who? To Satan, right? So God starts the conversation, not Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan comes along nefariously, evilly, wrongly, doing evil and says, well, God, uh, Job only loves you because all the stuff you give him. And then later in the second interview, he says, well, you preserve Job's life if you deal with his, you know, his, um, give him sickness or unimaginable um, pain, then he'll curse you right? So you see this interplay of, and God gives permission both times. And not only that, Job says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not trouble? And the, uh, the scriptures specifically say, Job didn't do anything wrong by ascribing this ultimately to God. Even the calamity, even the loss of his children and the loss of his stuff, the loss of his health, all of that. Now we know as the readers, the behind the scenes, and we say, well, we can see God is superintending all of this. He is orchestrating all of this for his ends. But then he's using this intermediary, uh, Satan, who is definitely, his motives are evil uh, and is perpetrating evil against Job. Um, and yet, uh, um, what does it all amount to by the time that we get to the end of the book of Job? Why? Why does God do this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you, you know, the whole wager, it's not really a wager, um, you know, that jo God and, and Satan have is uh, Satan says, well, Job's going to curse you. He's going to renounce you. Job never does that. Now, Job sins in other ways, but Job never curses God, and he never uh, gives up faith in God. Um, he sins in other ways, um, but he doesn't do um, that. So what happens? In the heavenly realms, God is glorified. He sh shames Satan, and he shows that God, God shows that he's right um, and that he's glorious, right? So it goes back to that plan and purpose of his glory. So here you kind of see the gamut of God. You, God does no evil in the book of Job. Absolutely not. Nor anywhere. God never does evil, right? 
but he also decrees uh, that evil and calamity happen, uh, even using intermediate agents like Satan, who is doing the evil. Um, and uh, why does he do that? Why does he orchestrate all of that according to his decree and his plan? Well, we see it according to his glory, right? Um, so does, is evil outside the decree of God? Absolutely not. Does that make God a sinner? Absolutely not. Um, and you see that played out with Job. You also see it played out in other places in Scripture. Uh, Bruce. No. Yeah, he can't deny himself. Yeah. Well, he doesn't do evil. Yeah, proceed. Yeah. Right. But the, you know, the, the atheist is going to come back and say, well, wait a minute. Like, look at, um, you know, look at it. Here we've got an example where it does look like God is doing evil you know, according to any moral standard, um, you know, so he's going to, but we know, we confess, we believe in God, so we're going to say, well, nothing God does is evil, right? But what we're trying to show is that, well, yeah, God's decree includes evil, but even in those instances where it might, where he clearly shows he's in control of the evil and calamity is happening, he's actually not doing any evil. And so that's what we've got to be able to show. Um, let's see, let's see, another, let's think of another example. Um, can you think of anyone in the book of Genesis who had a great deal of evil perpetrated against him, but then we ultimately see where God's purposes worked out? Joseph, right? Joseph is another kind of poster child for this. So um, let's go to Genesis 50. Um, let's do Genesis 50, 15 through 20. We'll go ahead and read that. Genesis 50, 15 through 20. So, was evil committed? 
yeah, evil was definitely committed by Joseph's brothers against him. So they're the perpetrators of evil. Did God plan for his brothers to do evil against him? Yes, because it says that he intended what they did um, for what? For good, right? So um, we see that evil was committed. That evil was uh, a part of God's decree and plan and intention. But um, God turns those evil actions for good, uh, for his own glory, but in this case, for the benefit of, well, keeping the family of Israel alive so that the promises that are given to Israel and to the world through Israel happen. Um, so you, that's another example of where we see, yeah, evil is not outside of God's plan. God doesn't do evil, uh, but he also uh, inten- works through what is evil for good. In the ultimate sense. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 And that, that's true. So that word calamity has a broader range than just evil things. But the whole reason that um, there's calamity is a fallen world. Because there's evil in the world, right? Um, because, like, you think about the end in Revelation, uh, God says there's not going to be tears or crying or pain anymore because the former things have passed away. So the fallen world, the fallenness in the world has been dealt with either in judgment or in redemption. And so now we're in a situation where there's not going to be calamity in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so in the broader sense, calamity exists because evil is in the world. But you're right, like things like judgment, like on Sodom and Gomorrah, those are God actively doing what is right uh, against evil, which is not evil, right? Uh, But then we could drive it back another step. Was the evil that the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah committed, was that part of God's predetermined plan? Yes. Um, And you might even argue, and in fact, Paul is going to do this in Romans 9 in talking about um, salvation or reprobation. He's going to say that even in the display of God's wrath in his judgment, of which the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah would be an example, his character is put on display, which is good. Um, It's part of him being glorified. The um, his, his wrath and his judgment being put on display um, is part of that. So even in that situation, we would say that, yeah, the evil, the gross evil committed by those um, people was part of God's predetermined plan and decree. Um, but again, even that it, God is using for his glory and good. So it's not that he delights in their evil, right? That's what we also must say. God doesn't delight in their evil. That's why he punished it, Right? But the way he's using it in that broader sense, um, he's, he's, um, he's decreed that that happened. Uh, Bruce. This is where we talk about two different kinds of, how do you want to say it, um, features of God's will. 
So when we talk about uh, like a thou shalt not, right? Uh, thou shalt not murder. Um, that is God's revealed will. That's what he desires. God doesn't desire murder. Like he doesn't delight in murder or anything like that. And then remember at the beginning when I read that definition, it used this funny word called decretive will. Uh, we would say that that's, uh, there's, there's a difference between God revealing what he, his, his desires, like he doesn't, he hates murder, right? And then the difference between that and his will of decree. Um, so on one hand, you've got his moral will, like uh, thou shalt not murder. And then on the other hand, you've got his um, will of decree. What does he decree to come to pass? And those are different things. Um, so that, does God desire murder? Does God desire homosexuality? No, absolutely not. Did he decree that it happened according to his good pleasure? Yes. Uh, not because he delighted in those things inherently, but because the working out of that plan ultimately displays his glory and his character. Um, that's the tension in how this works. Yes, so... Mm -hmm. Can the Christians alone see this only in the eyes of faith? Well, ultimately, yes. Because I, I don't, there is no way I could argue that with non Christians. Those aren't satisfactory answers for a non believer. So do we accept this? And what we're reading, because God is only given us the eyes of faith, that you can the ultimate good of God to proclaim the glory. I think uh, I'd have to, like, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of investigate, because obviously this is an ongoing discussion, not just among Christian circles, but amongst philosophers in general, the problem of evil, right? But, you know, the, the, in terms of, like, are, are there people out there who would be non-believers but would still accept kind of the greater good argument, which is essentially what we're arguing for, um, and the greater good being the display of God's glory, um, so, uh, but in, the, in the, the, the very specific sense of which we're talking, right, um, in terms of faith and allegiance and love for this God, it's, um, then yeah, we're ultimately going to be dependent on the Spirit to, to reveal those things. Well, the Scriptures to reveal those things. I could imagine someone reading, I could imagine someone who's a non-believer reading the Scriptures and saying, okay, that makes sense. And maybe I might even be inclined to be, kind of believe it intellectually, but with no like commitment to the God who would who'd have this. Yeah. But the atheist is going to come back and say, wait a minute, if, think of David. Think of David in the Bible, right? David doesn't murder Uriah directly. He orchestrates the situation so that he dies at the hands of, uh, I think it's the Ammonites, um, you know, they're besieging a city. And God holds David accountable, even though he didn't directly use those means, right? But that's effectively what we're saying. We're saying God never commits sin, never, right? He is never the perpetrator of sin. He uses secondary means and causes, like Satan and the evil of men, to ultimately work out what he has decreed for his glory. But then someone's going to come back and say, well, what about David? You know, David did that. Uh, and he was held accountable for it. 
And what we're going to have to come back to is this, that the rules for the creature and the creator are different. Well, he did. Right, well, and but God also, like, um, um, yeah, God did it, for, uh, well, not judgment on Uriah, right? Yeah, let's go to Romans 9, because this is, like, where a lot of the same discussion ends up. So, go to Romans 9. So, God is talking about, well, in Romans 9 through 11, God's talking about, well, has God given up on Israel? Are they done for? Um, and, and Paul starts talking about election and the righteous remnant that are actually his. So in the midst of all of that, um, we get Romans 9, starting in verse 14. I do believe he's talking about individual, not corporate election here. Um, so Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my uh, name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is unblushing saying, uh, yeah, I hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he's held culpable for it. And he's held culpable for it so that God's power might be um, displayed in the world, right? Um, So God's glory, God's character is put on display. Uh, Then Paul answers an objection, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? One vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews also, but also from the Gentiles. And so you see how Paul kind of rests his argument? His argument is, um, you're the creature, God's the creator. God has complete right over what he makes to use it for his own purposes. And so even in the idea of God, clearly here, we talked about this earlier, whom God chooses to um, save and those whom God passes over for salvation, um, ultimately in both cases, God is glorified, one in the display of his power and wrath, his justice, and the other in display of his mercy. In both cases, God is glorified. So it is a greater good argument, um, but it, 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 you can only believe that it's a greater good if you believe that God's glory being put on display is the greatest good in the universe. It, and this goes back to Brenda's question. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that the greatest good in the universe is for God to display his magnificence and glory, then you won't accept this. And the only way you're going to accept that is if you turn allegiance from sin and self and see God as lovely, as glorious as the, the treasure of our souls, which can only happen through... Uh, the spirit um, granting regeneration and faith. Because um, otherwise it's going to be unpalatable. So. I think it's also useful to have an, a sort of understanding of how evil can translate into glory to God. Yeah. I had a conversation with my sister one time who was a 
of a literary personality. Uh, she says, okay, so an author writes a book, yeah. but there's no conflict. Is it a good story? Are you enjoying it? Or are you bored and putting it on the shelf? The author got no glory because they wrote a bad story. Right. There's no, there's no good conquering evil. There's, no, there's, there's, there's nothing for you to look at and admire. Right. But if you introduce conflict, and sometimes the more complicated the conflict, the better the story, um, then the author writes a good book and they become yeah. praiseworthy. And it's kind of a similar situation with God and his creation. If he just created people that were all good, all giving glory to him, is it really that good a glory? I mean, it's like what Jesus said, you know, if you love those who love you, what good is that? If you love those who hate you, that's noteworthy. Yeah. You know, because it, it, it it's there's a conflict there that you're overcoming. And I think it's this, again the same kind of parallel idea. Similar, yeah. That, you know, does God get any glory if all things are sunshine and roses? Right. Or do you forget that he's even there? Well and it, yeah, it's it's he's done all of these things. He's decreed that evil um, and calamity be um, such that it displays all sides. Of his character. Yeah, Emily. I realize that John Hawkins is the point that people don't exactly have a view of God's uh, divine plan most of the time because of predestination and everything. And just in general, how the world works in more of its just like how he's the author of all things. Um, one thing I wanted to say about that example of him being like the author of Another illustration that's sometimes been used, I think Piper has this, this illustration of uh, a mosaic. So if you think of a mosaic on a wall, you know, it's made up, made up of all these little tiles, right? And so you step back and you see the whole mosaic and it looks beautiful. It's, it's, it's got contrast. There's brights, there's darks. Um, now, if you zoom in on one of those tiles, um, they might look very ugly and very dark. Uh, and, in, you know, with relation to that single tile, there might be even revulsion on the part of the artist, um, but it has its place um, in the whole mosaic. So that's kind of same basic concepts that you guys are talking about there. So, David. Um, so some people would argue from Romans 9 that when it's talking and making these arguments, it's not considering individuals, but it's considering the people of Israel versus the people of, well, Gentiles, right? And, um, and that's one of the things that Paul is trying to o overcome. He's saying, well, someone can show an objection and say, well, what's God done? Has he abandoned Israel as a nation, as a people? 
Um, and so some people will say, well, Paul is in Romans 9 just talking at a corporate level, not at an individual election level. But I think, I think he's very clearly talking at an individual level, but that also informs the corporate. So that's the short answer to a very long discussion. So, um, but yeah, good question. Um, let's go ahead and stop there. Um, so what do we learn, right? God's decree, it's, it's not only that God has knowledge, like we talked about last week, but that he has planned it. That everything that happens in the universe, everything that happens in history, um, is planned, predetermined, ultimately working towards what? Towards the display of God's magnificence um, and his character in all its facets and its attributes. Um, because that is the greatest good in the universe. So when we even think about salvation, the greatest good of our salvation is not that we are rescued from hell. The greatest good of our salvation is that we are rescued to know God and to be able to see and delight in his glory, um, which we want to keep in mind. So on that note, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father in heaven, you are glorious, mysterious, um, even um, disturbing, um, fearful um, in, in ways that um, we don't fully grasp you, you are incomprehensible, and yet we believe what you have declared about yourself, and we want to love you, we want to delight in you, we want to enjoy you, um, enjoy all aspects of your character. Lord, we know you don't delight in the death of the wicked. Um, you say that uh, about yourself, and yet you have decreed that it is so for the ultimate um, picture and display of your glory. But we do pray that we would see more um, more sinners rescued. We pray that we would have greater confidence in you and trust in you because we know uh, your decree and your sovereignty. We pray that we wouldn't be um, fatalists in the sense that we just say, well, what does it matter? Because you've decreed it anyway, Lord. Help us to be diligent and active in dependence on you, working and doing the things that you, um, that you say that you love. So, Lord, prepare our hearts for worship. Um, prepare our hearts to see Christ this morning. Um, even as we, we come to a time of singing, of hearing your word preached, a fellowship. And we just ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.